And the first reading today, of which there are two, is in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. He said to them, This is what I told you while still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. It's going to be helpful for you to have your Bibles open. Normally, You'd have pictures and you'd have all the Bible verses appearing up on the screen. Not today, obviously. So uh, have your Bibles open. It's good to have them open anyway. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 for most of our time. So that's where you want to be. And um, as, uh, as Matt introduced, we're going to be spending the next four weeks in this one really, really important chapter of the Bible. It's not that... Other chapters of the Bible are not important, but it is one place where the Apostle Paul unpacks uh, the resurrection and some of its implications in extended detail. It's kind of like, uh, has anyone seen The Matrix? You know the movie that came out a little while ago? A few shakes, a few nods, okay. Not a massive spoiler, but about a third of the way into the movie, the main character, Neo, encounters this man he's been seeking called Morpheus. Okay, they've got cool names because it's that kind of cool movie. And Morpheus puts before him a choice represented by two pills. One is red. And one is blue. If you take the blue one, Neo, you're going to go back into your slumber. If you take the red one, you will enter a new world, the true world, uh, and you'll see things as they truly are. And obviously, Neo doesn't take the blue pill. He takes the red one, and that's the rest of the movie. The resurrection is like the red pill. It changes absolutely everything. 
And for us as Christians, we need to really wrestle with what does the resurrection mean? Because if you're kind of like me, when I became a Christian, I heard someone tell me that Jesus had died for my sins. Yes, he had. He'd gone to the cross, he'd taken the penalty, and if I put my trust in him, his, uh, his work on the cross would be mine that I would be forgiven, I would be accepted because he had taken my penalty. And do you notice what's missing there? The resurrection. And I kind of thought, well, what's the resurrection got to do with really anything? Jesus died, that's the important thing. And it's nice that he's alive and I really appreciate that and I'm sure the father likes having him back. But I didn't get what the resurrection meant. But can I say, like Matt's little picture here, the resurrection is the critical part of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul never says, if Jesus didn't die. But he does say, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And the resurrection, it changes everything, not just personally, It changes things cosmically. And we're going to dig into this over the next four weeks. The resurrection has implications for how we think about justice, what we think about the environment, how we see human relations, how we face death. We will see this unfold in the next couple of weeks. So if you think uh, Christianity is just something about, you know, it's about how to get me to heaven, you're missing the point. The resurrection shows us that Christianity is about the renewal of all things. This morning, uh, if uh, you could see the screen, you'd see there are three beautiful points all starting with F. Okay, We have foundations, we have facts, and we have freedom. Okay, let's talk about foundations. Does truth matter? We live in a society that uh, talks about itself as a a post-truth age. Fake news, yes? Okay, back in the 1990s, some of you might remember the X-Files, okay? And even if you never watched the X-Files, you might know the slogan. Does anyone know the slogan? Okay, anyone? The truth is out there. Now, I think in our society, we'd probably say, no, probably not, (laughs) And if it it is out there, could we possibly know it? We've become quite cynical. We've had political figures stand up and tell us literally that black is white, up is down, right is wrong. It didn't suit them to say this, so they said this, and it bears absolutely no resemblance to reality. It's fake news. And so we live in this world where truth seems to be optional. But can I say, regardless of who you are this morning, you do believe in truth. You do believe in absolute truth, don't you? Okay, the doctor offers you an option of pills, a red pill and a blue pill perhaps. And you go, is this this real medicine, a placebo, fake, like a sugar pill, or poison? Truth matters. What that doctor tells you, what he or she says, matters, doesn't it? That person coming towards you with a scalpel. Is the degree on the wall a counterfeit or real? You want to know that that is a true surgeon. 
You might remember the film. I've got a few film references for you this morning. Uh, Catch Me If You Can, about Frank Abagnale, who basically impersonated a doctor, a lawyer, uh, and an aeroplane pilot. You want to know that the guy in the pilot suit is actually a pilot, don't you, before you get on the plane? You do, really. Probably more importantly, you want to know that the engineer who actually checked the engines is actually an engineer, but that's another matter. Truth matters. If those illustrations don't do it for you, just ask yourself, how do you feel when you've been lied to? Truth does matter on that level, really, doesn't it? When someone has taken you for a ride, you don't go, ah, truth doesn't really matter, does it? When someone has lied to you, when they've strung you along, they've, they've just led you down the garden path, you have this intrinsic, this is wrong. Truth matters. And when it comes to people, we don't talk about someone being true necessarily. We talk about trusting them, don't we? Whether someone is trustworthy. Truth matters. And Paul tells us that Christianity is built upon fact. It is built upon truth. And he goes as far to say that if these events didn't happen, it is complete rubbish. It is empty. It is a waste of time. Let me read to you from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2. Paul says, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The Apostle Paul talks about something called the gospel. Now, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, you'll know that the gospel is a word that means good news. It's like a news flash. It's an announcement uh, that is made. It is something that is telling you that something has been done. It wasn't in the day a distinctly Christian word, but it was a word that was used to tell, hey, wow, this is amazing. Good news. And the Christians hijacked this word. And they talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were other gospels in the ancient world. There was the gospel of Augustus Caesar, and they found that engraved into a piece of rock somewhere. Uh, You can find it online if you want to. But this is the gospel that was preached by the apostles. The gospel that they received and upon which they took their stand. The gospel by which they are saved unless they depart from that word. Paul here is saying salvation, life, depends upon this gospel, this news. Is it true? Brings us to our second point, facts. What are the facts? What are the core things that Paul wants us to engage with? Well, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. These are the critical things he's saying. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says there are key facts. 
absolutely critical that Christ died, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. And this is supported by testimony. Paul lists all the people who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Verses 5 through to 8. After that, he appeared to Kephas. That's just another name. Uh, that's the Aramaic form of Peter. So Peter, the apostle. Uh, and then into the 12th. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Uh, not because the sermon went too long. That's just a polite way of saying they've died. Okay. Uh, but the implication is that one day they will wake. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul lists a whole bunch of people. He gives names. Why? Because at the time he was writing, these people were alive. And so if you wanted to, Corinthian, you could get on a boat and travel across to Jerusalem and you could find these people. Peter had actually been in Corinth, so they could have asked him directly. Paul had been there, they could have asked him directly. Here we have eyewitnesses. And it's not some kind of hallucination because 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. The French uh, philosopher... Blaise Pascal, he, he quoted, it's a fairly rough quote, so uh, forgive me for it. He said this, he said, I prefer witnesses who get their throats cut. You go, oh, what he's saying is the truth of your testimony, will you die for it? And the apostles did. History tells us that at least 10 out of 12 of them died violent deaths. Only the Apostle John died of old age after being released from an extended time in prison. And maybe the other guy, Simon the Zealot, he could have died of old age, but he also could have been crucified or sawn in half. Okay, so take your pick. But history records that pretty much universally, the 12 key eyewitnesses... They died for the testimony that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again. Facts matter. But one of the interesting things is that there is another testimony that is born here. Paul says that lots of people saw Jesus. But he also says in verses 3 and 4, there is this repeated phrase, according to the scriptures. Paul is telling us that the Old Testament, the books uh, from Genesis through to Malachi, it speaks of the fact that the Christ, God's king, would die and rise again. It predicted details. Let me read to you from Psalm 22. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display and people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. If you know anything of the, res of the crucifixion accounts, you'll hear the echoes of a psalm written maybe a thousand years prior. You can go to passages like 
Isaiah 53 and see incredible detail unfolded. Yes, the Old Testament predicted the sufferings of the Messiah, but not only that, it interprets it. Verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes that he died for our sins. The scriptures give us the reason for these events. They don't just tell us what was going to happen. They tell us why it was going to happen. And as uh, Paul here links in Jesus' death to our sin, he puts the cross at the centre of God's drama of salvation. You can sum up the Bible in four steps. From beginning to end, 66 books, thousands and thousands and thousands of chapters and verses and words and all the rest of it. Four steps. Creation, sin or fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God's intention, how he made everything perfect. Fall or sin, our rejection of him and the impact that had on us and on the rest of creation. Redemption, what happened through the death and resurrection of Christ to answer the question raised by our sin. How is God going to fix this? Jesus is that answer. His death and resurrection then bring in the new creation or the restoration, those four steps. And so when the Bible says that Jesus died for sins, Paul here is saying this is the critical moment. This is the climax of God's story of salvation. This is the good news that Jesus brings an answer to the big issue of our sin. Now, we don't really love the word sin. It's not very popular in our culture, unless, of course, advertisers pick it up and they tell us it's something good, something enticing. Uh, you know, they're advertising generally ice cream to us at that stage, aren't they? Yes? Okay, you know, temptation and sin. Um, it's not really a term that most people are happy with. And most of us don't want to walk around and say, I'm a sinner. You know, people might say that you've got a bit of a self-image kind of problem it's because we actually see that sin often we have the wrong ideas of sin we can see sin as breaching the these random rules these arbitrary rules that are out there and uh, if i do something that breaks them that makes me a sinner and you think well, what what's that about you know, if I've got a nice little slide here, it says uh, rule number one, the boss is right. Uh, rule number two, if the boss is wrong, refer to rule number one. Okay, sometimes we can feel that sin is kind of like that. You kind of like these rules and what are they? And they don't really make sense. Or maybe we go, they do kind of make sense, but we lose some of their impact. You know, there's lots of roadworks happening around Adelaide at the moment. Yes, you're driving along happily at 60 and then you get that lovely little sign that tells you you've got to slow down. You've got to slow down to 25 maybe. And, and you, you see all the cones that are out there and the signs that are out there. But so often, you know, I drive through those and I'm like, where are the workers? The people that I'm meant to be slowing down to protect. So does that mean I have to slow down? 
Um, and so I'm aware that there's going to be speed cameras correcting me if I don't slow down. So I do. Uh, and I would encourage you, of course, to obey the law at all times. But if I was to breach that speed limit, I don't think of it as a personal offence against Scott Morrison. Do I? Do you? Here's a law enshrined in our system, the road laws that are there. Do we look at the, the government of our country and think, my sin here, my breaking of this rule is a personal affront to the one who governs us. We don't. We think of sin in impersonal senses so often. But the Bible teaches us that God's law is an expression of himself. It's an expression of his character, his holiness, his love, his wisdom. And so to reject his law, to refuse his rule, is to reject him. And that is, in a sense, what is at the heart of sin? When we actually we reject God as God and we set ourselves up in that place. That's what the Bible teaches at the heart of sin. It is the rejection of God as God. When we break a rule, when we commit a sin, it's just an expression of that deeper rejection of God's rule. I've written here, sin is giving to others what we should only give to God. Or sin is seeking from others what we should only find in him. Sin is giving to others what we should only give to God. And seeking from others what we should only find in him. And the Bible tells us that our sin, our sin is universal. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Christ came, God's only son, Jesus Christ. And he bore our sin as our substitute. How does that work? How does it work? Well, do you know the story of David and Goliath? Okay. Uh, there's Goliath's there. Goliath is this massive warrior, born and bred, huge guy, well-armed, well-equipped. He's a Philistine. He's an enemy of God's people. And the Philistines and the Israelites are lined up in their battle array. And what happens is Goliath comes out and he shouts. This is in 1 Samuel 17, if you want to read it. Uh, he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come up and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are, not, are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down and fight me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Goliath was a representative for the whole army of the Philistines. And as we know, David becomes a representative for the whole army of the Israelites. They are the representative figures and the battle would be decided through them. Israel wins because David won. David was their representative. It's kind of like if you've played sport, 
I've got a nice picture here that you can't see of Meg Lanning, the Australian women's cricket captain, tossing a coin. You don't imagine that she says, you know, imagine she wins the toss and she says, we're going to bat. And then her bowlers go and grab the ball and run out and the fielders. No, what the captain does dictates for the rest of the team. Jesus is our champion, our representative. Jesus is our captain, the one who represents us in this situation. And at the cross, the Bible tells us that we, we are in Christ. He is our captain. And at the cross where he dies for our sins as our substitute, he wins salvation. Salvation from the consequence of sin, he bears its penalty. He endures the alienation to win our restoration of relationship with God. He turns away God's just anger at our sin. But the Bible also tells us that Christ's death for our sin, he breaks the effects of sin. And so we have a rebirth through resurrection. We die with Christ, the scriptures tell us, and we rise again to new life. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. So brothers and sisters, this morning, if you are someone who has put your trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, if Christ has been your substitute and you have accepted that through repentance and faith, you are a new creation. Not all that you will ever be, but you are on the far side of judgment and death. So what does it mean? Let me unpack this. Bring us to our last point, freedom. It gives two key things I want to draw out. It gives us a freedom to rest, but it also gives us a freedom to work. Let me read to you from verse 9 of chapter 15. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, if you read in Acts 9, Paul didn't just pick on Christians that he came across casually. He went and got authority to go between cities to bring Christians back from far away to bring them to trial in Jerusalem. He approved of the judicial murder of Stephen, one of the early church leaders. Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy, 3, uh, 1 Timothy 1 as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. So let me ask you, what would Paul need to do to set himself right with God? To earn a thumbs up from God. This is a man who acknowledges that he has blasphemed, persecuted, and violently oppressed God's people. How does he get back in the good books? How does he earn God's approval? There's a lot of work there, isn't there? Let me take you to another movie. It's an old movie, and I'm going to spoil the end of it. So if you haven't seen it, sorry, you've had about 25 years to see this movie. Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen it? The last scene, Tom Hanks, he's uh, been shot up and he's dying, sitting on a bridge. And Matt Damon, who is Private Ryan, 
he comes up to him. And if you know that, don't know the story, there's, been, there's three brothers in the US Army and two of them are killed on the same day and the third is missing in action. And uh, Tom Hanks and his team are sent to go and find, if they can, and get out the last Private Ryan so at least uh, the mother doesn't have to deal with three sons killed. Okay, And through the whole story, pretty much all... Tom Hanks's team end up dead to save Private Ryan. And here you have the happy movie, really. It's lots of laughs. Um, it's a good movie, actually. Uh, but Tom Hanks is there on the bridge, bleeding. Matt Damon's there, quite traumatised, because he knows why Tom Hanks is there with all these bullet wounds in him. It's him. Tom Hanks says to him, he says, earn this. Can you feel the weight of that? How would you feel if you were Private Ryan? And not long after this, it flashes to the future and the graveyards in France, lines of cross after cross after cross after cross after cross. Those who'd fallen in battle. And there you have the older Private Ryan standing there in front of the grave of this man. And he says to the tombstone, I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. Heavy words. And then he turns to his wife who comes up. And he says, tell me, I'm a good man. He's begging for that reassurance. Now, can you imagine the Apostle Paul, before the cross of Calvary, before the cross of Jesus, and Jesus on that cross, before his dying breath, he didn't say this, but imagine it. Imagine if he'd said to Paul, earn this. Imagine if he said that to us. How could we ever do enough? The author of the old hymn, Rock of Ages, picked this up. You'll know the words probably if you know the hymn. Not the labour of my hands could fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Paul here, he says these incredible words, this violent persecutor, blasphemer, this man who could never make it up. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 1 Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And if his grace is sufficient for Paul, his grace is sufficient for us. And we receive that by putting our trust in the truth of this person. So how does it let us rest? You don't need to strive to be accepted by God. 
You need to receive what he freely offers. But maybe this morning you're not a Christian. You go, ah, that kind of guilt stuff. (laughs) It's not for me. You know, I don't really believe God. I don't know why you're at church if you don't believe that there is at least a God. But it's good that you're here. But can I say it is for you? Because our culture does guilt really, really, really well. That's why we hate people judging us. Because we hate to be made to feel guilty. If we didn't believe in guilt, we wouldn't care. But because we do care, and we hate it, and so to be judgy is almost the worst criticism that you can have. But it's not just guilt. It's that sense of self-worth. How do you know that your life is worth living, that you are a significant human being? And we peg it on our work, we peg it on our relationships, we peg it on all sorts of stuff. By any sense of the equation, Madonna, the pop singer, is successful. Yes, you may not like her music, but she is successful. She's an icon who spanned the 80s, the 90s, the noughties. I don't know if she's still going now, but anyway, noughties probably applies to Madonna really well. But she said this in an interview. She said, every time I accomplish something, I feel like a special human being. But after a little while, I feel mediocre and uninteresting again. I find I have to get myself past this again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. I have to prove I am somebody. Constantly working to be good enough. And God says, forgiveness, acceptance, belonging. The Father's delight in us as his children. It is freely given because Christ Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day. It's an amazing thing. Astounding thing. The salvation won by our champion, standing in our place over sin and death and proclaimed in the good news of the gospel. So the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ, it lets us rest. But does it mean then we just kick back? We do whatever we want? No. What's Paul say? Verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. That's all the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul here is a life. He represents, he shows us a life transformed by grace. He knows that he can't earn. He knows that he doesn't need to earn God's acceptance. He knows that God's love is freely given to him through Christ. He knows that. He knows that he does not have to set right his sin because God has set it right in Christ. And what does this do to Paul? It means that his life 
overflows. His grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them. Paul knew what it was to be forgiven. He knew what a debt had been wiped clean. He knew the love of God to him. And so that overflowed. And so here we find the freedom to work, not that we might be accepted, not that we might be good enough, not that we might stand at the end like Private Ryan begging for someone to reassure us that we've done enough. No, Christ did everything that we needed. And because of that, because of his love for us, it overflows through us. So when you think of your life, your obedience to God, all the labor that you have to serve him in this world, it is a response to what he has done. It's an amazing word that he says, his grace to me was not without effect. Brothers and sisters, what effect has grace had on you? Someone asked me in a course that I was doing, the notes asked me, what have you done this week just out of love for God? And to ask you that question, what have you done, not to earn, but because Christ has done it? What sin have you turned away from? What act of service have you engaged in? What praise have you offered? Because grace, if we get it, it will turn our lives upside down. There are no limits to what we will do. Why? Because what wouldn't you do for love? And someone who loves you this much, what wouldn't you do for him? Not to earn acceptance, but because in Christ, God has wrapped his arms around you. And said, you are mine and nothing will take you from me. The sin, the guilt, the shame, Christ has taken it. You are mine. Christ died for sins. Let me leave you with the last verse of another hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross. Isaac Watts writes these words. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, your grace to us in Christ, it is amazing. We deserve nothing other than condemnation. But in Christ, we receive nothing other than the commendation that was his alone. Father, we, we deserve to be turned away, but in Christ, you throw open your arms and you welcome us home. We don't even deserve to be a hired servant. But in Christ, we are sons and daughters, celebrated and feasted in the heavenly places. Father, we pray that your grace to us in Christ 
would be ever more real to us. By your spirit, change our hearts. Convince us of the love that you have poured out. Let our hearts testify with your spirit's words as they cry to you, Abba, Father. Lord, we pray that your love and your grace would transform us so that we would live lives truly in response to what you have done for us in Jesus. And in his most precious name we pray. Amen.